We're going to dive into the message this morning. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. If you want to use one of those pew Bibles in front of you, you can do that. That's in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. If you don't want to do that, you can follow on the screen because the words are going to be there in just a moment. But um, this is an interesting day. It's an interesting day for a bunch of us in the room because um, it's one of the rare days that 9-11 falls on a Sunday. And this day brings back lots of memories for lots of us in the room. Some of us, no memories because we weren't around back then. But um, this day brings back lots of memories for us. And already talking with a few people this morning, we still remember, you remember where you were. You remember what you were doing. Um, and you remember what changed. I, I was thinking about this this morning. I remember in the aftermath of those immediate events, I was, I was remembering how there was this unusual tension that was in the air because as a nation, our freedom had been challenged as a nation, as a people, like on our, on our soil, we had been assaulted. And there was this nationwide desire to protect our freedom. And yet I remember in those moments in an attempt to protect our freedom, like this overall overarching understanding of what it means to live in the United States of America, this thing we call freedom, in, in an attempt to preserve that large thing called freedom, we began giving up or losing certain other smaller freedoms in an attempt to preserve freedom. It was a really interesting time. And it's been interesting ever since, I think. I think that changed a lot for us. But here's what I've noticed. Anytime that we start talking about freedom, people begin to lean in and listen. Have you noticed this? We get, we get pretty interested around the subject of freedom because I believe we all want freedom. We all truly desire to be free. So let me ask you this question. What does freedom mean to you? What does freedom mean to you? Like if, if I said to you, I want you to imagine a picture, like a frame, a picture in your mind of what freedom would be, what would that picture be? Like would it be a mountaintop vista, like you're looking over some beautiful Pacific Northwest view and you're taking it all in? Or would it be an eagle soaring through the sky? Would it be a flag waving in the wind? What would that picture be? I know mine is. I'll share it with you just a little bit later. But I want you to think about this. What does freedom mean to you? See, for the past several weeks, we've been walking through Paul's letter to, to the Roman church. And, and they're a group of people who are just, just like any other group of people. They are just like us. They're trying to build a life of faith on this news of or the reality of who Jesus is. They've heard about Jesus. They, they, wanna, they wanna live this life. And so Paul is writing. He's, he's really trying to help them see their lives more clearly, to understand themselves physically and spiritually, who they are. Like, what is this journey that you're on? What is happening to you? And, and what has happened to you in the past? And where are you going in the future? He's trying to help them understand this. And he's explaining certain things about the way that they are. For example, last week we talked about the reality that we do the things that we don't want to do and then we don't do the things that we want to do. And Paul unpacks that and he explains it and he, and he tells us why. And one of the repeated themes that we saw last week and previous weeks that he keeps giving us over and over is this idea that you and I, ultimately, we are in bondage. Uh, the, the letter opens up with this slave theme and this idea that we are all slaves to something, but Paul has revealed that we are in bondage and we're held captive by this thing that he refers to as the flesh. 
In other words, Paul contends that we aren't really free. Like, I'm not free, and you're not free if we're living according to, this is the phrase he uses, if we're living according to the flesh or according to our sinful desires, our sinful nature. Which I have to pause here and point out that this is a complete antithesis of what our current cultural climate is telling us. Right? So society today, these days, is saying that freedom is obtained. Freedom comes when you and I do what we want when we want it. That's what our society says, right? Follow your feelings. Like, follow those urges. Satisfy your cravings. I mean, how many of you have heard somebody say, you just need to be true to yourself? Right? You've heard that before? I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. I would just ask a clarifying question, and it's this. Which self Because the Apostle Paul presents this idea that there are two sides of who all of us are. There's the old Brad, and then there's the new Brad. And what Paul is alluding to is that there is a new freedom for the new Brad. There's a new freedom for the new you. But we have to distinguish between the old and the new, and which one are we going to choose? And the problem for us, I think the practical problem for those of us who have maybe stepped across the line of faith, and you've said yes to Jesus, and you've gone, I'm all in on this thing, the challenge for us is it, it, is, it is never as easy as it seems, right? Like, we struggle. We struggle. Let's, like, this is a place we need to be really transparent and authentic. Like, guys, we struggle with this, plain and simple. We have a hard time understanding how to overcome things in our lives. Like, there's stuff in my life I go, you know what? I know this probably needs to change. There's stuff in my life that God has shown me. You know what, Brad? That probably needs to change. And yet I struggle with those things in my life. And so then we find ourselves asking questions. And I don't know if you ever think about this. You ever wonder, like, do Christ followers, do Christians spend their whole life on earth frustrated by their ongoing failures? <laughs> like, is that what it means to be a Christian? You're like, well, I, I decided to follow Jesus, then I just got frustrated with how many times I messed things up, right? That's pretty much what it is. Or do you ever wonder, is there power? Is there a power that we're missing out on? Is there a power that we can actually achieve something beyond our present circumstances? The answer to the first question is no. We do not need to spend the rest of our lives frustrated. And the second answer is yes, because we have been given a power to achieve victory. Romans chapter 8, I talked about this last week, it opens up the door, it blows the door open on an entirely new, beautiful subject, and it's on the ministry of the Spirit of God, the reality that God is Spirit, and God's Spirit is moving and active, and Paul begins to unpack this and reveals to us that this is the secret to how we move and live and and exist as people who are followers of Jesus. So We're going to discover this today and unpack it more, but I want to read, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the first four verses and then then talk about it. So check this out. This is what Paul starts to say in Romans chapter 8. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. I want to explain what Paul is saying by using 
uh, an illustration that we're going to let run through the course of this sermon today. So just track with me for a moment. Maybe this has happened to you. You go to the beach. Anyone ever been to the beach? Raise your hand if you've been to the beach before. Okay, good. A good number of you. Imagine you're at the beach and the water looks so enticing you can't help but get in. Obviously, this is not an Oregon beach, right? This is some other warmer beach, right? But you see the water. Maybe it was Cannon Beach yesterday. I heard it was 81 degrees yesterday at Cannon Beach. Maybe you got in the water there. I don't know. But imagine you're on the beach. You see the water, and you're like, I just have to get in. And so you go get in the water, and you're swimming around. You're bobbing around. You're enjoying yourself. You're oblivious to the danger that is lurking around you. And then suddenly you become aware that the friends that you came with on the beach, they're getting further and further away, and you're drifting away from the shore. And so you begin putting some effort in, and you realize, I'm not making any progress. I'm not getting any closer to the beach. You are caught in something that we all know is what? A riptide, right? A riptide. So we fight, we suddenly realize, we realize our situation, we start to understand there's something happening, and so we begin to fight. Human instinct, we all do the wrong thing, and hopefully you've learned enough now to know what to do, but our human instinct is we start to fight the current, right? We start to swim back towards the beach. And so you start swimming with all of your might, and you use all of your strength, and you can barely lift your arms out of the water, you can barely kick your legs, and you keep working and working, and you only realize, I'm not getting any further, I'm not getting any closer, I'm probably actually getting further away. Here's the picture. This is what Paul is telling us. We're going along in life. And at some point, every human being wakes up to this moment where you realize, and whether you put this language on it or not, this is really what you're waking up to. You realize your distance from God. You realize God's on the beach, and I'm out here, and I can't get to him. And so it, it exhibits itself in all sorts of different ways, the angst of our soul, these existential questions we wrestle with. But all of it boils down to we are distanced from God. We realize we're far from God and we need to mine the gap. We need to fill the gap. And so that's when we look to the beach and we start working. We start trying to fix stuff in us. We start trying to say, well, I need to be a better person or I need to work on this or maybe I should go try this or read this book or learn that. And so we start to do all these things in an attempt to seek God. But the riptide is what Paul calls the law of sin and death. It is pulling us further and further from the beach. Regardless of how hard we work, we aren't strong enough we can't get to the shore. We can't swim forever. And so the only logical conclusion that we can draw is that we are stuck out here. Why? Because the law doesn't change. It's a law. It keeps going on and our lives keep bumping up against it. The law is an absolute in a world of relativism. We're not going to be able to get out of the situation on our own. Now this is my favorite part of the illustration. So while I'm out there and I'm fighting and I'm struggling, you're out there, you're fighting, you're struggling, you're realizing this is a desperate scenario. Suddenly you hear a voice that says, come to me and I'll save you. And you look behind you and somebody has rolled up in a sailboat. And the somebody is none other than Jesus. And he's dropped the sails for a minute and he's reaching out his hand and he's like, come on, come on, jump in, jump in, right? You're swimming against the current. You can't do this yourself, but come to me and I'll save you. And so here we are, we're in our exhaustion, we're in our despair. He has his hand reaching out and he says, come into my boat and just enjoy life. Like this is a different experience. Join me, you can enjoy the ride with me, right? And so what do you say? Now nah, I'm looking for something a little speedier and sportier, right? 
says no one ever in that scenario, right? Those are the words of somebody who's not desperate yet, right? If you're desperate, when you realize how desperate the situation is, the distance, the riptide, where you are, you take hold of his hand and you allow him to pull you out and put you on his boat. He pulls you into his boat and he says, I'm gonna take you to shore. I'm gonna get you there. I'm gonna do what you couldn't do for yourself. You're on my boat now. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what it means when Paul says that you have been freed from the law of sin and death. You're not swimming against the riptide anymore. It's there. It didn't go away. You've just been plucked out of the ocean and put on his boat. But now, on Christ's boat, I can relax, right? It's only in him that I can relax. In Christ. In his boat of salvation, he says, there is no condemnation. I love that. Like, you get on the boat, and he's like, you're an idiot. No, he doesn't say that. He's just like, oh, it happens to a lot of us. <laughs> Thanks for getting on, right? There's no fear of death. There's no despair. You're free. You've been pulled from the riptide, and you have been given a life of freedom. That's what he's given you. How did this happen? Well, we're told in verse three that God has provided for what the law could not do. What the law could not do, God did. He fulfilled the requirement of the law, it says, which now means that when God looks at me, he sees one who has taken hold of the hand of Christ, who's placed his faith in him for salvation. So when God looks at me, he sees not what I've done. God doesn't look down and see me flailing in the riptide anymore. He goes, oh, you're in the boat with Jesus. That's great, that's amazing. He sees what Christ has done on my behalf. So then that brings up the next question. Okay, so you've been plucked from the riptide. That's a theological reality, right? We're not wrestling with this. And if you are, it's a fight you don't have to fight anymore. You can get in the boat. But then the question is, okay, that's my standing. That's my position. How do I actually live based on this? What's that look like? Which is really interesting, especially on days like today. Because we come into a room like this, you know, and we sing... We celebrate the goodness of God. We talk about his faithfulness and what he's done in the past and his, what he's gonna do in the future. And, and we get really excited. We get pumped up. And then, like, sometimes it takes till Monday. But then, like, Monday, we wake up and we go to school or, or we go to work or we go do all the things we normally do on a Monday. And then we're suddenly faced with our own brokenness or some temptation rises up inside of us, something that we've been trying to avoid or change. It's there, whatever it is. And, and there are these moments when you think, man, as good as I felt yesterday, I wish something was different about today. Like, how do, I, how do I get better? How do I make Monday better? I know Sunday was great, but how does Monday get better? And so when this happens, what do we do? Well, some people say, well, the secret is, the secret is you need more rules for your life. Like more rules, get more rules. And so we like write out some rules. Like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm only gonna miss church one time a month. Like I'm gonna be there three and one. That'll be my new rhythm. I think that consistency, that's gonna push me over and I won't, I'll be different because of that. Or I've heard that people should tithe in the church, which is like 10%. I'm gonna go like 11, 12% because I'm sure Jesus has some inflationary impact of things that are going on. And I just wanna make sure I'm covered. And so I'm gonna make sure I give religiously. I'm gonna do this thing. Or I'm gonna pray, not just for my dinner, but I'm gonna pray for breakfast and lunch and maybe a couple times in between like I'm going to start praying more right people start doing these things I'm going to listen to K-Love now <laughs> K-Love's still a station right Casey is it I don't I don't know I don't know it, I don't, is, a thing. it is a thing okay I wouldn't know but um, I'm going to buy some khakis and a button down you know I'll really look the part that's what I'm going to do right you get the idea let me be painstakingly clear if my sarcasm isn't um, that is not the secret. 
That's not the secret to tomorrow morning or this afternoon. The answer or the secret, if you will, is found in where you are located when Jesus pulls you from the riptide. If you go back to the illustration I was giving you, what was Jesus in when he picked you up? Sailboat, right? And what powers a sailboat? The wind, right? Did you know that the ancient Hebrews used the word ruach to describe or name the animating presence of the Spirit of God? The word ruach is also the ancient Hebrews' word for breath or wind. The wind. As I was writing these words this week, I was sitting on the back porch of my house and there was this breeze that picked up. It was a steady breeze and I could feel the wind on my face. I could feel it pressing. I could feel the force. I could experience the movement. And yet it was completely unseen. In chapter 7, I read this last week, but I, I was saving it for this week because in chapter 7, Paul kind of cracked the door open to what he would be getting to in Romans chapter 8. And I want to I share this with you because look at what he said back in, in verse 6. He said, but now, by dying to once, what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve, and listen to this phrase, in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. He's talking about the new way of the spirit. He's saying, no, 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 there's a different way. Like you've always followed the rules and the laws and you've always worked moralistically to do these things in you. But now there's this new way of the spirit. We're no longer bound by the law and captive to sin. Instead, now we are powered by the wind of the spirit. That's what he's saying. In fact, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples right after the resurrection, he was talking to him and he said, I'm, I'm promising you, I'm gonna give you my Holy Spirit. I'm gonna send my spirit, the spirit of God to you to be alongside of you, to be, he used the word comforter, to be your, your partner, to walk with you in life. And, and, and then a little while later, we read in the first book of, 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 of the, of the or first chapter of the book of Acts that this early church exploded when the Holy Spirit began moving among these people. In fact, Jesus had told them, you're gonna have power when my ruach comes upon you, when the breath of God comes upon you, you will have power. That early church exploded. And do you know what they had? A bunch of really regular people who learned the new way of the Spirit, the new way of the Ruach. It was not their ambition. It wasn't their talent. It wasn't their giftedness. It wasn't the location that made the early church successful. It was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their individual lives. What they were doing out when they went into regular life, that's where they were powerful. And that's what Paul was, was waking the Romans up to. He's saying, no, no, you've heard about Jesus, but there's this other side of this, right? There's this new way of the Spirit, and he's doing the same thing for us. He is now the power source of my life and your life. He's the wind in the sails of the boat upon which I now dwell and which I now live. And by the way, the wind always blows. The Spirit of God is constantly moving, constantly working. Sometimes I think we act like, you know, the Spirit of God just kind of went away, right? Like God just like took all the wind and sucked it out. But no, the Spirit of God is always moving, always blowing. And so the question is, how do we want to live then? And, and Paul explains this 
That's what these next few verses are about. Verse five, he says, those who live according to the sinful nature, they have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Um, Earlier I said we all have pictures maybe of what freedom looks like. I want to show you pictures of freedom, what freedom looks like for me. Let me show you just a couple of, of shots here. This first one, I took that picture earlier this year of a boat that was like the boat that I was on when I took the picture. And then this next picture is me driving the boat and sailing. This is the first time I ever sailed like in the open ocean. And um, I had learned, I cut my teeth on the raging waters of Lake Coeur d'Alene in North Idaho. And uh, they're very treacherous waters. They're not. But uh, I was really nervous. In this like, picture, this is a really like, nerve-wracking moment for me because I had never quite done this. And we're, we're, we're in this giant catamaran that only has one working rudder. One of them had broken while we were out. And so it's one working rudder. And so it's this massive boat. It's hard to drive. And so my job in doing this, if you've ever, how many, anyone ever sailed before? Anyone ever been on this? Okay, a bunch of you have sailed before. Good, this is good. So there are these things on the sail, these little ribbons or little strands that, that are called telltale. And the telltales fly horizontally and straight. They kind of flutter in the wind. When you have set the sails perfectly and you have captured the wind the right way, when those telltales are moving in the right direction, it says that the boat now is under maximum power. You've got the wind where you want it. And now it's capturing the wind and it's moving in the right direction. And so my job driving the boat is to capture the wind, right? to pay attention to the wind. I'm on the boat, but I'm responsible to make sure that the sails are put in the right place. That's the illustration that Paul is giving us here. We're learning how to capture the wind. That's what this new way of the Spirit is. You're on the boat, but now that you're on the boat, the challenge for you is is to do something, right? And what I'm learning to do and what Romans 8 is teaching us to do is how do we take advantage of, how do we put into full effect the the power or the fullness of the spirit that is present in me and present in this world? I'm going to do something, right? That's what the life of the spirit is all about. So how do we capture the wind? I think that's the question. Like you go, okay, but this is really weird and ethereal, right? So how do you capture the wind? Paul shows us right here. And I'm going to be really practical and, and really simple for, for just a moment. The first thing that he says here is, don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. If you want to be powered by the Spirit, if you want the wind of God's Spirit to be moving you, don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. Um, when I was sailing... Um, because I like shiny objects and I just get really distracted really easily, there were things like dolphins in the water. And so like I would be watching, like looking for dolphins or there's other people on the boat and I'd be like looking around because I'm a little ADD. And so I'm like looking around and all of a sudden I would look and the sails are just like flopping, right? They're flopping all over the place. We're not moving. And like the guy that was kind of in charge, he'd be looking at me with this like angry look, like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I got it, I got it. I'd be like a 12 year old kid again, just like, sorry, dad, you know, and I'm like getting the boat back and I'd be doing that, right? But that's exactly the illustration that Paul is giving us here. Like setting your mind on the the things of the flesh, it means you drop your, your vision, you drop your eyes, and you start looking around at the life around you, and, and you get distracted by those things, setting your mind on the things of the flesh. It's allowing the old Brad desires, the old Brad cravings, the old self to dominate my thinking, right? The urges, the appetites, all of those things. But let me also say this. 
having those urges and having those appetites, that's totally normal. Like, the idea that, like, somehow, like, you become a Christian and suddenly, like, oh, I don't desire those things anymore. I've never met anybody who that's true for. Right? You still have urges. You still have thoughts. You still have desires. Like, let me just normalize that for just a moment. It's not a matter of if those things come up in your life. It's when they come up in your life. The real question is, what do you do with those things when they come up? Right? When we set our minds on them, right? When we focus our attention, that's what he's saying. When you focus your attention, when they become our preoccupation or they become our occupation, then Paul says, there's this deadness that you encounter. Like the sails start flapping in the wind and the boat stops moving because you've taken your attention off the spirit and now you're focusing on these things that are, that are in you. He says, the mind set on the flesh is death. It doesn't say that the mindset on the flesh will die. It says the present condition, like you just, it's just death. It's not alive. There's no animation to it. There's no sensitivity to the things of God, to the things of the spirit, the things of eternity that just doesn't exist in that moment. And he says, that's the condition, right? You just, you quit paying attention and you just stop moving and it feels flat. So don't set your mind on the things of the flesh. Instead, Paul says, set your mind on the things of the spirit, that's what it looks like to trim the sails. That's what it looks like to capture this power. It begins, by the way, let me just say this, it begins by acknowledging that you are a spiritual person. Do you know this? We live in a world that is so focused on the physical, but you and I are spiritual beings. You and I both know that there is something that is alive and something that is moving, something that is beyond this broken body that that soul has been placed in, right? You are a spiritual being. And so I don't wanna freak anybody out this morning. I, I, wanna, I don't wanna like weird you out with crazy mystical talk, but the reality is that what, what makes Christianity work and what makes Christianity what it is is the experiences that we have that are spiritual and supernatural. If it's not spiritual and supernatural, it's just philosophy, right? If it isn't supernatural, it isn't Christianity. So we need, we need more than a physical world. We, we need more than what we can see or what we can touch or what we can observe with our senses. We need the spirit, Paul says. That's that thing that we're looking for. In fact, Paul prays in Ephesians 3, he prays for Christians and he says, I pray that you would be strengthened in, the might, in his might in your inner man. He's referring to this thing that nobody sees that we all know is there. You are spiritual. So it starts there. You start by saying I'm a spiritual person. And by the way, if I see myself as spiritual and physical, then I have to take the same consideration and even more so for my spirit than I do for my body. Are you with me on this? Are you tracking with me? Like I know I'm physical and every day I wake up and I realize I have physical needs that need to be met. I need to eat, I need to feed this physical body and I need to exercise this physical body. The older I get, the more I know I need to listen to this physical body and sometimes rest this physical body. What Paul is opening our eyes to is you're a spiritual being and you need to do the same thing for who you are as a spiritual person. The spiritual side of who you are needs to be fed. It needs to be exercised. It needs to find times of rest in the same way. It needs to be fed. You know, um, 
Scripture is described as being God-breathed, that same word ruach, that the ruach of God is breathed into the pages of Scripture. So you say, how do I feed my spirit? Well, you feed your spirit by spending time listening to and reading and absorbing the word of God. You feed yourself spiritually. You say, how do I exercise myself spiritually? Well, spiritual exercise means you stop and you acknowledge that those nudges and those things that you hear sometimes, those, those moments of should I go to this person or say this thing or should I, should I change this in my life, that that might not just be your intuition, that might be the spirit of God moving. And so exercising yourself spiritually means you actually stop and listen and you lean in and say, like, spirit of God, are you speaking in this moment? Are you moving? You become sensitive. Turn yourself on. Create some awareness for yourself and say, is the spirit of God moving in this moment? Is that God and not just me? So you exercise, you rest. You take time to say, God, I'm listening to you. All of this is what Paul is alluding to. Paul is getting at this idea that you and I are at the helm, like Jesus invites us in the boat, but now you and I are capturing the power of the wind and the Christian life is truly lived at its best when we find that wind and let the spirit of God move us and power us. Are you with me? I want to close with these words in Romans 8, and then we're going to take communion together. So if you have the cup, you can take this out. But listen to this. Verse 9, Paul begins to just reiterate what we've just talked about. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, he's saying this, listen, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And then verse 11, verse 11 should be like the verse that all of us just realize how much we have available to us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So either the spirit of God lives in you or the Bible tells a bunch of lies. Are you with me on this? The spirit of God lives in you. Lives in you. And if you want freedom, if you want real freedom, it's when we move our attention to the spirit who lives in us and we listen and we let him lead us. You know, um, if you want to take your communion elements right now, I'd, I'd appreciate that. Take the bread and the cup. Do you, know, do you know how seriously God takes that riptide that we're caught in? When I take communion, I'm reminded of the desperation that I was in and God's desperate desire to lift me out of that desperation. It is no small thing that the God of the universe sees humanity floundering in their moralism and their religiosity, floundering in their flesh and their sinfulness, their brokenness. He just sees people wrestling and he goes, no, no, there's a different way and I wanna pull you out of that water and I wanna give you a new way to live. And the, the gravity of the situation is evidenced in the effort with which he addressed it. He went to a cross. God of the universe said, I'm sending my son to die 
to do what nobody else could do so that you could be plucked from the water and set free from the riptide of sin and death. Jesus sat with his disciples the night before he was betrayed and before his crucifixion, and he knew what was ahead of him, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. I want you to eat and remember me. Let's eat together and remember Jesus. He took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. It's huge language. When Jesus said it was a new covenant, it was like Jesus was taking out a contract, the most binding of contracts. And he said, we're signing a new deal between God and humanity. You know what it means? Nobody can take you out of the boat. You live in the boat because of Jesus. You don't live in the riptide. You may feel like you're floundering, but Jesus has delivered you from that. And there's no turning back. And so Jesus said, take the cup and remember what I have done to set you free. Let's drink together. Would you stand with me? If you're new with us, we close with a benediction, which is a simple prayer that I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to raise my hands as I pray it over you, and if you want to receive it, and just a symbol of receiving it, I encourage you to hold your hands out like this. And I, I'm going to keep this really simple today. May you be men and women who see that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here this morning, you guys. We've got elders around the room with lanyards on. If you ever want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody, they are here for you. We will see you guys next Sunday. Have a great, amazing week.